Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where everyone is gearing up for Carl Sagan Day this November 7th. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM, Ada, Grand Rapids, or streaming live at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and normally at this time in the show, I'd be announcing my fellow doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean and Dr. Professor Luke Galen, but um, there's a bitter rift um, between our factions, so I'm not going to do that, and we're just going to jump right into it here. I'm not speaking to you, Dave. I'm just speaking to Jeremy, and then I can get to you. Okay. Because you're a freaking agnostic. That's That's totally fair. You new atheist, you... Coming up later in the show, we will be talking about um, the bitter rift amongst atheists, as it's been reported. Um, we also have an interview with the great Michael Shermer, everyone's Woo-hoo. favorite, a man who probably needs no introduction here for our listeners. I hope not, because I don't have one ready for him. <laughs> and uh, startlingly enough, yes, NPR, of all places, is making it to our shit list today. I, I won't believe in anything anymore. That's, uh, that's like blasphemy. Speaking of which, oh, oh, who has a transition, huh, huh? So Blasphemy Day uh, happened just a little over a month ago. We talked about it on the show, but uh, Blasphemy is back in the news, and this time President Obama is involved. We've talked about on the show before with Austin Daisy or in the Blasphemy Day extra episode. right. We talked about the human rights, the UN Human Rights Council, and uh, basically how they have been promoting the idea of uh, defamation of religions and how that should be stopped and governments should work to stop defamation of religions, which we've argued is violation of free speech. Right. And when Austin Dacey was on the show, because he at the time was working for the Center for Inquiry at the UN, so Austin Dacey was was very much in the know and, and – Uh, He pointed out that this Human Rights Council had really been uh, taken over by... Yes, the Organization of the Islamic Conference. Yes. Um, Basically, they hold sway on the the Human Rights Council right now, which many of those countries are themselves human rights abusers, Mm -hmm. which is why Austin Dacey said he was actually pretty proud of our move of, of withdrawing from the council. Right. That it was a defunct body, that it couldn't even protect the fundamental human right of free speech. Well, we are back now on the Human Rights Council. Obama... Not us personally, but the United States. The Obama administration has chosen to join the council again, even though the OIC is still very much in power. Mm -hmm. And uh, a report by the Weekly Standard claims that Obama... Basically, the Obama administration is so dead set on engaging the UN and improving the United States reputation in the Muslim world right that it has caved to these blasphemy laws that it is now supporting the human the UN human rights council's 
defamation against religions resolution. Quoting the Weekly Standard article, You Can't Say That, quote, The new resolution championed by the Obama administration has a number of disturbing elements. It emphasizes that, quote, The exercise of the right to freedom of expression carries with it special duties and responsibilities, which include taking action against anything, meeting the description of, quote, negative racial and religious stereotyping. It also purports to recognize the moral and social responsibility of the media and Mm -hmm. supports Mm -hmm. the media's elaboration of voluntary codes of professional ethical conduct to combat racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia, xenophobia, and related intolerance. Now, that's what the Weekly Standard reported, but actually... It I've heard a different not, story from different sources. Yeah, it's not quite so uh, clear-cut that this is Obama pandering to the Muslim world. According to the Christian Science Monitor, I believe, uh, one argument, and, and this, this is an editorial piece um, entitled, As a new member of the UN Human Rights Council, the U.S. must persuade other countries not to go along. Their argument is that Obama has joined this council not as as a way of pandering, but as a way of trying to fix it. The Associated Press tried to clarify matters by talking to Hillary Clinton. Uh, mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton said, quote, some claim that the best way to protect the freedom of religion is to implement so-called anti-defamation policies that would restrict freedom of expression and the freedom of religion. I strongly disagree. The way pr- to go, Hillary. Yeah. The protection of speech about religion is particularly important since persons of different faiths uh, will inevitably hold divergent views on religious questions. These differences should be met with tolerance, not with suppression of discourse. And Michael Posner, the assistant U.S. Secretary of State, um, said very much the same thing. The notion that a religion can be defamed and that any comments that are negative about that religion can constitute a violation of human rights to us violates the core principle of free speech. Mm -hmm. And uh, Posner claimed that the administration wanted to differentiate between harassment of people based on their religious belief and defamation of religions. And he claimed that that was going to be their agenda on the Human Rights Council. So hopefully, if they back up their words with action, hopefully we're taking steps in the right direction. Right. And and this... It comes down to a very central kind of argument. Do you engage these people to try to fix it? Put the the strength of the U.S. behind changing um, these or eliminating these blasphemy laws? Or do you just say this committee is corrupt, ignore it, okay, stay away from it, do not um, sign on? I'm not sure what the best tactic is, but... This seems at least more proactive. Well, we're playing that experiment out right now. So Absolutely. I guess we just have to wait and see. All right. Well, we have another update, this time from our cults episode. The, the Europeans are not real big on Scientology, it seems. The Germans, um, I know years back, they wouldn't allow Tom Cruise or John Travolta movies into the country. Well, they didn't want him. <laughs> I, and actually, that whole thing with Valkyrie, with him playing... Um, 
Stauffenberg, yeah. well, the the good Nazi. They right, all fixate right. on Stauffenberg being the, the. This is the one where he led the plot, July twentieth plot against Hitler. Mm-hmm. And I was actually I was skyping one of my German friends. I'm like, oh, they're they're gonna have a Hollywood movie about uh, the good German. Uh, and she's you know effing Tom Cruise, effing effing Scientology. <laughs> not gonna see it, you know. So oh, okay, really. Yeah. They really don't like that. No, no. It, well, and quite frankly, it. I, I didn't see the movie. Did either of you see the movie? No. Yavol. You did. Yes. It looked kind of awful to me. It it looked they were pretty Nazis. Like, boy, Tom Cruise just he doesn't look like the kind of guy who's going to get down and dirty and try to assassinate Hitler. Um, I need Brad Pitt to do that. Quite frankly, we're here to kill Nazis. <laughs> no, actually, they had uh, Eddie Izzard was in that too. So he was he really? really? Yeah, he played one of the guys that was drawn into the conspiracy. Oh, fantastic. I love I love Eddie Izzard. What was it any good? Was he in drag? Uh, <laughs> yes and yes. No, uh, I actually uh, I didn't think it was that bad. I thought Tom oh, Cruise okay. actually I think he's actually a fine actor. I'm just distracted by his beliefs, you know. Yeah. Well. Yeah. All right. Well, back to the subject. Anyway, uh, so but in France, um, a French court has fined the Church of Scientology eight hundred and eighty-eight thousand dollars, which is a mere pittance for the Church of Scientology. Um, after a couple claimed that they had been manipulated into buying between $30,000 and $73,000 worth of church products. This story comes to us from Slate.com. What do I do with all these e-meters now? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's exactly it. They were pressuring these people to buy e-meters to, uh, to get auditing, to enroll in different services that the church provides. Right. And the great thing about France is that, uh, like the United States used to treat the Church of Scientology, they recognize it as more of a business. It's a business. Yep. Than Germans do the same thing. Actually, a church. Mm-hmm. Um, prosecutors were actually initially trying to ban the Church of Scientology in France. Right. Um, but the prosecutors weren't successful in getting that done. Uh, however, though, this is this is a major victory. The Church of Scientology has never has never taken a hit like this before in France. Uh, one fascinating thing about uh, that I learned from this article um, is that France has a real history of cult busting, as the the title of the article suggests. Um, they have special councils and have for decades now set up to kind of uh, crush cults. Now the thing is here they have not defined cult. Okay. What they're they're prosecuting um, is cult-like movements. Um, well, that, that's right. They haven't defined a cult in terms of its of the beliefs as, as or what even their numbers constitute like, a cult. They are defining a cult according to its consequences, basically. So, what they use in their criteria to judge what counts as a cult uh, would be, according to the Slate article, cult busters. Groups that demand unreasonable financial contributions, encourage non-participation in elections, Mm -hmm. cut members off from their families, or other characteristics would be indoctrination of children, mentally unstable membership. Right. Promoting antisocial behavior. Right. Couldn't that apply to things like, you know... Joe's Witnesses or, you know, or, certain sects of Christianity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess that's the other side of this argument is that does have a pretty wide application. And maybe that's fully intentional. They have a list of 173 groups that qualify as cults. With um, their own enemies list. Yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses are on there. 
Well, see, I was just shooting from the hip on that one, but yeah, yeah I mean, our it, gr- groups are allowed to uh, uh, sue for defamation and can get off the list. Right. Uh, a, a group called Anthroposophy, <laughs> I mm. think it anth- Anthroposophy. I don't, I can't even say it. But anyways, uh, this group successfully got off the list. Well, they have groups like the Raelians there, don't they? Yeah, it, it's interesting too how um, in Europe religions get classified as religions or not because in the uk jedi is an official religion and i think in france that would probably not qualify although it doesn't have antisocial behavior sure like not bathing and and uh watching star wars cartoons but okay um but as far as being cut off from family members that sort of thing i I don't think it would it's a fairly being on the cult list doesn't immediately have any sort of uh, ramifications negatively. Right. Uh, it does mean they're more closely watched. Yes. It does mean that uh, the cult leaders can be held responsible for deaths of members that are due to so, cult-like activity. Like, um, um, uh, well, like what we saw with the Church of Scientology in Florida and that young sure. woman who was, we talked about on our cult yeah, episode. was imprisoned in their hotel and everything else. If that had happened in France, people at the very top could have helped could have been held responsible for that legally. Right. Now, you mentioned the Jehovah's Witnesses and how in France they are on the the cults list. For our cults episode, we had an email that we read from a listener whose brother was in the Jehovah's Witnesses. The listener had already gotten out. Yeah, he was a former JW. Yeah, and he was looking for help on how to help get his brother out of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And earlier this week, we got some fantastic news. I believe you have an email to read, Jeremy. Yeah, uh, the email was from Steve. He was giving us an update. When we originally talked to Steve, he was really concerned about his brother, wanted to look for any strategies to try to, you know, arguments that he could use to help deconvert his brother. And I think our advice was, you know, you got to be there as a family member. You need to have good conversations, but don't try to force somebody out of this. Right. Rather... Um, so you're going to get get uh, right. backlash. And his brother was going to be going off to a public uh, college. Mm-hmm. Which is rare s- for Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. And we said, you know, let him encounter different perspectives and different people be there to support him and you know sometimes that's the best you can do i thought we counseled on kidnapping on that one am i is my memory <sighs> faulty Throw oh we, we did we edited roll him it in out a carpet and, and we got back <laughs> together and recorded a new that's one. right that yeah, was the yeah. edit the, <laughs> that's right my, yeah. my comments on rolling him in a carpet and shoving him in the van were shouted down i believe yeah <laughs> well we just you know we consulted our lawyer and it, anyways uh we got this letter from steve saying it starts off i just have to say i love you guys Aw, we love you too. All of us, or just some of us? Collectively, I think. He didn't single you out for attention, Luke. No one ever does. But he meant to. In the letter, he's talking about his brother. He says, uh, he called me out of nowhere one day and said that he needed to talk to me about his inner conflict with the religion. We spoke for hours, and he clearly explained how being away from home and having friends of all kinds of backgrounds had changed his mind about the sect. In all, he's thinking critically as to why he doesn't want to take part in blind faith, but he also has me to support him when he spills the news to the rest of the family. You can tell Steve's relief and enthusiasm about that. 
And uh, so we just wanted to congratulate Steve and uh, so glad that you had the courage to talk to your brother about these things and to be there for him. Yeah, and, and that you were there to, to talk things through with right. him when he needed it. I sometimes get really upset when skeptics out there are pessimistic about the chances of ever changing anybody else's mind. I think everybody on this podcast used to be a religious person. Steve uh, and his brother were were Jehovah's Witnesses. Really, if you have the patience and people care enough uh, about you to not bash you over the head for your beliefs, but rather talk to you about it and help you to think critically, people can change their minds. Right. And we get some emails from people who um, say that we have helped them change their mind. Um, a lot of people who kind of start down the path, find our show as well as um, other skeptical podcasts out there, and it really helps them um, – I think more than anything else, just feel comfortable with the new headspace that they're they're moving into. Right, and put a human face on doubt, realize it's not so threatening. Right. Well, I'm glad we get to play whatever Absolutely. role we do. In and, and we're thrilled for um, for your brother there. Now uh, we have to just figure to charge for this. That's all we have to do. Yeah. Right yeah. <laughs> Start <laughs> making money off of it. Deconversion, your 1999 kit. And now that being said... Not everyone who listens to the show becomes more skeptical. We got another email. <laughs> we did. We did. We uh, we got an email from Damien. Uh, which? <laughs> yeah, I thought that was funny. Well, too. I never really. <laughs> Damien, put the dog down, Damien. <laughs> it was a while ago. Um, but actually, it was a great email. I, it, was, it seemed very it was, sincere yes. to me, and, uh, and he had some of the nicest things to say about the podcast that I've heard in a while, and I took them all to be sincere. I, I did. I found it was interesting in his email at the end. He said, uh, I find your podcast useful for putting my thoughts in order. And though you probably don't like to hear this, I actually think that as a consequence of listening to this show, I'm drifting more into the camp of Christianity than that of atheism. No! <laughs> well, I didn't, you know, he no. <laughs> didn't really give any reasons as to why, so I, I don't don't know what that's all about. But regardless, we are glad to have you as listener, Damien. I did think it was interesting, he said here, it truly takes faith to be an atheist, just as it takes faith to be a theist. And I've heard that a lot before. I believe we got an email from uh, Rosemary's Baby that said the same thing. Damien, Halloween, yeah, we got whatever. It. We okay. got it, All right. But Hitchens uh, has that new thing out where he's touring with a minister, or the, he was right. filmed touring with a minister, and he made a comment on that too, where the minister basically said, "What Christopher believes takes as much faith as what I believe." And you know, I think all of us have in debates have heard that, and, and it's just I still can't wrap my mind around that. What does that mean? <laughs> it takes just as much faith to be an atheist. Are they suggesting that we're ignoring evidence and and, right. and flinging ourselves into the into the subjective void of it's just that we want to go with it and yeah, you without know, evidence? On, on one side, I could see maybe I could grant them that I do know a lot of atheists that haven't necessarily thought their positions through. I mean... It, Oh, non-believers, there. Yeah. non-believers are just like anybody else in that regard. You have some mm-hmm. who who don't believe for principled reasons, and you have others who don't believe just for whatever reason. Yeah. And you know, it is true that sometimes people can deconvert for emotional reasons and not rational reasons. But I think that statement that it takes as much faith to be an atheist, I think that's getting at something else. Well, anyways. 
I had a chance to talk about this subject and others with Michael Shermer. Sweet. Michael Shermer is the editor of Skeptic Magazine. He's the author of Why People Believe in Weird Things, How We Believe, The Search for God in an Age of Science, and most recently, The Mind of the Market. And so let's hear what Shermer has to say about skepticism and faith. Michael Shermer, thank you very much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Oh, you're welcome. I have to make a personal confession. Uh, you play a very important role in my personal story and uh, move to skepticism. I was once at a Bible college training to be a minister <laughs> and was beginning to have doubts. And I discovered, in, in the same week actually, discovered Carl Sagan's Demon Haunted World and Why People Believe in Weird Things. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, and it introduced this very radical notion to me that skepticism is not a negative thing about a person necessarily. Skepticism can actually be a virtue. In the same way that science is really virtuous in terms of it being the best tool around to understand how the world works. And that's a virtue in the sense of uh, those of us who want to live in a reality-based world. And um, it's not flawless, of course, but it's it's still the best thing going. And so, in a way, um, science is skeptical. I mean, it, 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 they're one and the same. Skepticism and science are one and the same. So, for example, uh, in science, we start off with uh, the null hypothesis. We assume that uh, whatever your challenging radical new theory is, it's probably wrong. We're just going to assume it's wrong until you prove otherwise. In in the exact same way that the FDA doesn't just approve any old drug to cure AIDS or cancer or, or viruses, flu, whatever, uh, you actually have to run experiments. They want to see your, your data, your epidemiological studies, your controlled experiments, and you've got the control group and the experimental group, and you, and you vary the factors and so on, and you see what the results are, and you present it in statistical analysis, and, and you say, look, uh, the null hypothesis should be rejected, and my effect is real because, and then you present your evidence. And, and in the exact same way, all claims should be treated like that, um, including religious claims that have some basis in, in something we can actually measure, like prayer and uh, mm-hmm. healing. So, and that has been done, and, and there's no effect. And so, um, you know, it's not that we automatically, as skeptics, uh, don't believe anything. Of course not. We believe all sorts of things that have been tested and proven. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like in the medical, back to the medical claims example, there, there's no such thing as alternative medicine. There's just scientific medicine and everything else that hasn't been tested yet. And it's not that alternative medical claims can't be true. Some of them might be. Some of them probably are. Maybe omega-3 fatty acids or, you know, whatever. Um, but we need evidence. I often take to be the intellectual opposite of skepticism. I don't know if you would agree, uh, but I take the intellectual opposite of skepticism to be faith, to just go ahead and believe something before or in the absence of adequate evidence to justify it. And I was wondering what your attitude towards faith was. I've read How We Believe, uh, mm. one of your books, and, and maybe I got it wrong, but if I were to sum up that the theme of that book... You acknowledge that religious people, for the most part, base their beliefs on faith. And they can think in in that domain and they can think scientifically, but it's a mistake to try to use science to justify 
what by their own admission should be just conclusions of faith. Right. Um, and religious faith is just another form of belief. So really what I'm interested in studying is belief systems and the power mm-hmm. of belief. And the way it works almost always is the following. You, you form beliefs for a whole variety of social, psychological, emotional, subjective reasons, and then you employ your intelligence and education to construct probable reasons for why you believe it. Uh, in a way, it's very similar to the hindsight bias or the uh, or sort of the after-the-fact bias that um, uh, that once you 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 believe something, you then find the evidence to fit it. We also employ the confirmation bias, where you look for and find confirmatory evidence for what you already believe, and you ignore the disconfirmatory evidence. You remember the hits, you forget the misses, just like you go to an astrologer to get a reading, you remember the hits, you forget the misses. Well, look, this is not uh, restricted to people getting astrological readings. Right. We all do this now. My fellow skeptics and atheists recognize this clearly when it comes to religious faith. Right, they but see they, it in others. They see it in others, but they don't see it in uh, in the realm of politics. But but of course, mm-hmm. it's the same process. Most people are liberal or conservative for various personal, psychological, emotional, social background, influenced by peer groups, by their parents, by what part of the country they're born in. And, but, of course, even hardcore scientists, skeptics, atheists, they say, oh, no, 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 I'm a conservative because I'm liberal, usually. I'm a liberal because I have these whole host of reasons. Yeah, but I'm, I, I'll bet you donuts to dollars that uh, you already were a liberal because your parents were or all your fellow atheist friends are or because all your college professors were. Uh, you didn't arrive at that belief through a bunch of rational reasons. After the fact, you then listen to liberal radio, you read liberal newspapers, you listen to the liberal politicians, and you filter it out. So it's, I think it's the same process. In your book, How We Believe, I remember that being a very an interesting point, was that you did surveys of why people say they believe in God or why they don't believe in God, and then you ask those people the same same question, but referring to others. Why do other people believe in God, and wh- why do other people not believe in God? And mm-hmm. what was the conclusion again? Right. Well, uh, Frank Sullivan and I discovered an attribution bias in which we mm-hmm. attribute to ourselves different motives than we attribute to others. Uh, and, and this is a general well-known effect in psychology, cognitive psychology studies. You know, I'll attribute my success to hard work and intelligence, and I'll attribute your success to, you know, you knew the right people, and you're a brown noser, or you got lucky, or whatever, external sources, internal sources for me, external sources for you. So what Frank and I discovered was that that's sort of an emotional, rational reasons to believe attribution bias. I believe in God because the universe is intelligently designed, or the eye, or, you know, how else could the Big Bang have started, or whatever. You believe in God because, you know, you were raised that way and, and it makes you feel good and it helps you deal with uh, death and, and that sort of thing. So we recognize in others that their beliefs are based on these psychological, emotional things, but we don't see that in ourselves. It makes me wonder to what degree are we skeptical of, of our own worldviews, of, of our own free will to choose our different beliefs uh, according to logic. I mean, if everybody else is rationalizing things that they may believe for different reasons, isn't that going to be true of of skeptics as well? It is true, yes, absolutely, of course. Uh, But science does have going for it the peer review collaboration or corroboration system, experimental method. All these things are built and designed to get around those cognitive biases. That's the whole point of the scientific method is that you can be fooled, 
but there's some other lab somewhere who maybe he doesn't like you, some other scientist <laughs> he's in competition with you, or or just the just the standard competitive nature of science that if you don't find your flaws in your argument and the and the disconfirmatory data that would refute your theory, somebody else will. Uh, usually with great glee in a published forum, debunk you. I mean, uh, science is a very uh, tough-minded uh, enterprise. You have to have pretty thick skin. Uh, you know, they don't suffer fools gladly in peer-reviewed journals. They, they're, they're only too happy to slam dunk you. And I think that's a good thing because um, uh, we're so easy, easily fooled by our own biases. Uh, it's hard to see. It's almost impossible to see your own shortcomings as a thinker. Luckily, we have the methods of science to help us correct those biases, that none of us can avoid making these biases. This is part of human nature, but we have science to help us avoid that, to help us transcend those mistakes in reasoning. Some religious apologists will question the very basis of scientific thinking itself, like induction, the principle of induction. And they will claim that to accept induction, for example, they would claim those that is a faith position. Yeah. How would you answer that? Yeah, I get that question all the time. The induction isn't a question or the isn't science itself a, a belief system and and, and all that. Uh, well, I, I suppose on some technical philosophical level, yes. But on a practical level, if you want to get a spacecraft to Mars, uh, good old Newtonian mechanics, calculus, um, or orbital trajectory calculations, that's the only way to get it there. Um, and astrology is not going to work. Prayer is not going to work. Uh, thinking uh, reflectively and long and hard isn't going to work. Um, it, it, in other words, my point is science. Uh, it, it may it may have these philosophical shortcomings or whatever. Who cares? It works. It right. works better than anything else that we have. And uh, and so that's why we use it. And 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 no creationist, uh, unless he's just completely out of his mind, is going to reject. The inductive process when it comes to medicine and treatments of his mm-hmm. cancer or flying a plane, you know, as Dawkins famously said, you know, you show me a deconstructionist or maybe it was a postmodernist at 30,000 feet and I'll show you a hypocrite. <laughs> uh, I mean, nobody doubts the value of science when it comes to, you know, practical things like uh, medical treatments and airplanes. Uh, no one's going to say, you know, this whole plane is based on that flawed induction process that you know, it's just an assumption. It's just a belief. Yeah, well, okay, j- jump out the window if you think it's just a belief. Right. Well, <laughs> why does it work so consistently um, if it were just an accident that we, that, we... That's right, yeah. I guess a deeper question might be why are the laws of nature structured as they are in the mm-hmm. first place? And there we kind of, we're starting starting to bump up against an infinite regress kind of argument. Um, You know, maybe there's multiple universes and universes like ours that have the particular kinds of laws of nature that we have uh, that can be discovered by science. Also happen to have stars that turn into black holes that collapse and create new baby universes that are like ours. And that's sort of a Darwinian argument uh, that Lee Smullins makes. Uh, now, you know, there's no evidence for this, but uh, but there's no evidence for the other answer either. Well, well, God did it. In, in any case, that's not even an answer. You might as well say X did it or the aliens make universes. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with that answer, I don't know. And, and that's a great point. Uh, none of us are, are um, consistent enough in, in saying when we don't know something. I actually think it's a must be an inherent trait in our natures that we just can't say it. <laughs> I don't, uh, uh, you know, you just sort of stumble it out.
<laughs> well, you have certainly played a very large role in popularizing skepticism and redeeming that term skeptic and actually telling the world that, you know what, sometimes it is okay to just not know. And uh, I wanted to thank you for everything you've done in that area, and thank you very much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. So it was awesome getting to talk to Michael Shermer. I wanted to talk more about this issue of faith, though. This is one of the, the... core arguments, it seems, that we all have to have faith, and everyone has faith in something, you just have faith in your science, or your Darwin, or something like that. It's strange, it can't be a criticism, right? You wouldn't think so. It would be very awkward if a religious person was criticizing an atheist for having faith. Right, because faith is one of their core values. No, but it's, it's a debating tactic to try to say a, a fa- to draw a false equivalence or to draw an equivalence, which right. is actually false. But to say you and I are we're both just uh, if the evidence is right on the knife edge, you're, I'm choosing to go with the God thing. You're choosing to have faith in the not God thing, and they're suggesting that that somehow is equivalent. Right, it's trying to make us equals as far as our our way of knowing, just just leveling the playing field. Oh, you have your faith, I have my faith. Yeah, and the suggestion is that, uh, like you're saying, Luke, that the evidence is, there's the same amount of evidence either way, and we're just choosing one side versus the other. I guess it's almost admitting, like, almost a sort of agnosticism there where they'll they'll say, well, you know, here's a mixed bag of stuff, and I'm making this of it, and you're making something different, so we're both the same. Well, and that's kind of what I was going to say, is that it is an admission. It's a very devastating admission when they use that argument. I, I generally always try to argue, no, it, it isn't faith. There is, right. There's a difference between believing in something in spite of evidence or before evidence. There's a difference between that and believing in something that you cannot prove, but it is the most rational or has the most evidence uh, going for it amongst all the different options. Right. So the strategy I usually use is just that. I try to get them to see that an inference to the best explanation is believing things on reason, is believing things by evidence. You don't have to just have faith in it, even if you can't prove. Right. But regardless, there's another strategy for getting them to see the exact same point. Even if they are going to maintain that we all take things on faith, that everything ultimately, when you when you boil it down, is a faith position. They still are going to have to admit that some propositions take more faith to believe than others. All right, the sun rises in the east, it sets in the west. Now to believe that tomorrow is going to be just like yesterday and the sun is once again going to rise in the east and set in the west... If that takes faith to believe, it doesn't take as much faith to believe that as it does, say, to believe that the president is really an alien from another dimension, is a lizard person and part of a global conspiracy to take over the planet. Right. Obviously, those two different propositions, sunrise in the east, sunset in the west, and president is a lizard person, obviously those propositions are not equal. It's going to take more faith to believe in one than the other. So they have to acknowledge that there are degrees of faith. Sometimes you need more, sometimes you need less. Mm -hmm. 
And a lot of apologists will admit that much. They don't have a problem with it. Notice that sometimes they don't say it also takes faith to be an atheist. Sometimes they'll say, I think it takes more faith to be an atheist than oh, to believe in God. Favorite. Yeah. They're already admitting that there are degrees of faith. And even better than that, if they're framing it in that way, they're admitting that it's better to accept the proposition that takes less faith. They're basically admitting that all things being equal, it's better to believe with as little faith as possible that a position that takes more faith to believe than some other is is a weaker position, right? So they're actually, in a strange way, they're actually affirming the importance of evidence and reason and logic for basing your, your beliefs. They're actually criticizing faith. <clears throat> Which is shaky ground for them. Well, right. It's It's put them exactly where we want them, which is in an evidentialist frame of mind. Mm -hmm. So I think whenever somebody tries that strategy, the whole, oh, well, we all just accept things by faith. Isn't it basically even? I think that's a good strategy to take. Just get them to see those things. First of all, there, there, there must be degrees of faith. And the position that requires less faith is the strongest. And then basically we're back, we're right back where we started. We've shown that this objection is completely irrelevant. Now we can move on to the real questions. The real questions are, how much faith does it take to believe that the Bible is inspired rather than that it's just a human document? Or how much faith does it take to believe that a God with unlimited attributes exists versus that matter or energy just somehow always existing? Just like when you look at the universe, um, is it easier to believe that there is no God or that there is a loving God who takes care of us when everything in the universe indicates that we're not being, quote unquote, taken care of? There's still awful things in the world. There's still natural disasters and illness and all that sort of thing. The point is you're steering the argument back in the direction of evidence. Using reason, using evidence to support our viewpoints is simply something that we cannot avoid. Any attempt to try to make reason and evidence irrelevant to a debate is self-refuting. It's, it's simply not going to work. Right. Regardless, though, there's something else that's important, and that is these things that we supposedly take faith in as atheists, so the principle of induction, the laws of logic, those types of things, mm-hmm. all religious believers have to accept these things as well. We are we are forced by necessity to accept these as real. You can't live your life not believing in induction. You can't argue your cases without the axioms of logic. Because you can't argue. Right. You, it, you it would, literally can't speak. Right. What are you going to do when you come to a stoplight if you don't believe in induction, right? Is Does red still mean stop? Does green still mean go? Nobody can live their life that way. But it requires something extra and special to have faith in their premises. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Anyways, that's a couple of epistemological points in the whole faith versus skepticism debate. What about the psychology of belief? Luke, we talked with Michael Shermer about some of his research that he did about, about attribution biases and belief and even non-belief. People tend to think that they believed 
in God for rational reasons, and other people believed for emotional reasons. People tended to believe that they doubted for rational reasons and others for emotional reasons. Now, is is this about, like, I as a Christian feel that way about Muslims, or I as a Christian feel that way about people sitting next to me in the pew? Like, is it other faiths, or is it my own group as in, well? In this survey, he was just simply asking about belief in God or oh, not. Okay. So I probably left it up to the individual sure. to assume, you know, to a believer or not a believer. But other research has done... Um, has actually backed that up. There's a study by a guy named Kenworthy, I think it was 2003, where they did the same thing where they asked believers and non-believers and gave them different categories of things. Like one of them was an internal reason, which would be the same as like I've thought about it, right. versus external reasons. You were raised to other people put, you know, cultural things. Mm-hmm. And then he asked them about themselves, the people who are like-minded to them, other in-group members. So if I'm a believer, another believer, right. and then the out-group people, people who are the opposite on the spectrum. So it's very similar to the Schirmer results in that people think that they themselves, as well as their in-group, um, okay. you know, believe more. However, there was it was a, almost a step-like progression in that people have a tendency to say even other believers are more emotional or People who believe the same thing I do. Even though it's the same thing as me. Wow. So... You know, some people uh, interpret these things as being like a self-esteem preserver. Like I was going to say, who would want to think that you know that they just believe because they were raised to? So then they come and it saves right. your self-esteem to say because I've thought about it and it's, it makes sense to me. That's why, mm-hmm. not just because my parents told me to. But I think that it's actually, in some ways, it's even more simple than that. And, and that is, what do you have access to? You have access to your internal thoughts and such. Whereas for other people, you just have access to observations of their. Behavior, cultural or, picture, that sort of thing. So if yeah. I'm trying to say why why does Jeremy, uh, you know, why is he an atheist? I don't have access to his whole thought process, but what I can see is obvious is that is like well, uh, you know, other th- things like he was in an untenable position with his thing, and so he had no choice but not to believe. Whereas my own disbelief was something that I've thought about it. Our own internal reasons get in the way of our the more um, obvious explanation that is people have situational. Constraints right. on them. Uh, if you were raised by your parents in a culture where 90% of people are Christians, you can see obviously that other people are guided by context. Mm-hmm. But your own thoughts, your introspection leads you to believe that yes, yes, I'm st- I'm also in this context, but I also have access to my thoughts, which give me the indication that I've thought about it, and that's why I'm right. sure I was raised to believe. But I've also thought about the reasons, and it makes sense to me, and that's why I believe. So the number of people who self-reported that they believed because they were raised that way is is very low. Yeah. So yeah. are we trivializing other people's reasons for belief or non-belief, or are we falsely inflating our own egos here? Well, th- mm. Think about this. What do, when you talk with Christians and uh, religious believers and you tell them that you're an apostate, you used to be just like them and were religious, so you're not anymore. What, is the, what are some of the more common things that you hear about why people are atheists? It tends to be stuff right. like they're angry, they're angry they have problems with their parents, that ca- they right, were disappointed. Right. That's their own attributional way of coming up with an external reason about why you flipped. You actually bucked the trend of going with your upbringing, right. but to them they still give a contextual explanation of you're just reacting to something. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, an apostate himself or herself would be inside their own thoughts and then say, well, I've thought about this and that's why. You haven't thought about it. You were raised this way. So is, our, yeah. our access to our mm. stream of, 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 of our thoughts actually um, forces us to suggest internal, internally driven reasons for why we do things when, in fact, we tend to ignore situational aspects of things. Right. 
Yeah, and so um, and, and that explains a lot of things, like you know, and, and not just in religion, but in things like politics. There's this concept in psychology called a blind spot bias, where all these biases, like you learn about in psychology, the actor-observer bias, where we say, you know, you do things because of your disposition, your personality, whereas right. I do things because of my context. If you're crabby, it's because you're a jerk, but if I'm crabby, it's because I didn't get enough sleep. All those things, you can teach people to use those general theories of behavior, but the problem is is that they tend to only apply them to other people rather mm. than themselves. And, and so there's a bias to our own bias. So knowing thyself is a, a problem. Ultimately, why somebody believes or doesn't believe, it just seems to be something that we can't access, that we can't really be sure of all the different variables. So why not just stick to the arguments. Yeah, well, I think in some ways science um, doesn't entirely eliminate this tendency because, again, people are reluctant to apply science when they learn it to their own thought process. I think what it is is it should promote a certain amount of humility that that, that we should be more aware of, the fa- of situational constraints on people instead of making dispositional attributions. If somebody else is acting a certain way rather than assuming that's the way they are, you know, and this right. goes for politics too. That that liberal or that conservative, they're a sheep in a herd of groupthink. But me, yes, I'm in a group, but I I thought about my position independently. It, it, you should. It promotes a certain amount of humility to know that people do this, that we're swayed by our own thoughts to kind of think that we're unique. It's not even that we think that we're better than other people, but people have a tendency to think that they're unique and and uh, free from situational constraints, which is, we've talked about this on the show before in the context of, like, determinism. You mm-hmm. know, that, that people tend to right. have the illusion of, uh, of since their thought process occurs, that that somehow relieves them of being determined by the context, but it doesn't. Right. We all conform. Right. Well, I'll take that as a good thing. That that reaffirms what we've, that what we talked about with some of those emailers and, and uh, everything else is, you know, it really is, it has to be about the arguments personal attacks, trying to psychoanalyze one another, all of these things are just red herrings. They don't really matter. In the end, is it rational to believe in God? Is it rational not to believe in God? That's the question that really matters. Mm -hmm. Let's move on now to, um, well, a busy little shit list this week. (laughs) (laughs) A busy little shit list. There's a whole sea of feces out there, (laughs) and we have it on a list. Oh, man. And a couple of stories that have just steamed my clams over the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, it's it's one thing because we haven't we haven't recorded an episode for a while, and these stories have been coming in. And as they come in, I read them, I get upset. But then, in preparing for the episode, sitting down with a whole stack of of articles, taking it all at once, I just wanted to you can't take that home with you man oh, it'll man. eat you up inside oh it's it's awful but let's Dave, we should probably pause here um maybe we should explain to the people why we haven't released an episode in a while we didn't get to do that on the last show well because we were because dave was in rehab wow. yeah, yeah um we haven't released an episode for a while partly just because we're very busy um is ultimately what it comes down to um and because of that we are now going back to, at least for the foreseeable future, releasing every two weeks. Pause so everyone can make their uh, angry noises. Which not only helps us um, put together uh, stronger episodes, but also there, there's been a lot of things like uh, we get quite a few emails now and we don't really get the chance to respond to them. By spreading out our recording schedule a little bit, hopefully that will give us more time to respond more to that, be more active on the 
forum and that sort of thing. So we know not everybody's going to be happy with that. I'm really glad that people enjoy listening to this show and and make it part of their weekly routine. We we made the decision to go weekly around New Year's. I think it was our New Year's resolution. And it lasted longer than most. Now it's our two-year, second-year birthday of the podcast. And I I think as our gift, (laughs) our gift to ourselves is a little stress reduction. Yeah. Anyway, getting back to our steaming pile this week, we have remarkably NPR. They ran a story which was all over Facebook immediately. And I thought, oh, wow, NPR did a story about atheists. This ought to be interesting. And it was interesting, um, but not in a good way. Yeah, the name of the article is A Bitter Rift Divides Atheists. The bitter Off rift to value, a good start. Which was news to me. I'm not aware of any bitter rift. Are you guys? I, 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 I'm not, personally, no. That being said, there are a lot of different atheist, secular, non-religious groups out there. And I realize not all of the groups have the exact same mission statement. Some of them don't get along with each other. Oh, yeah. There's certainly politics that enter into yeah. the group. A lot of these groups are all getting their funding from the same places, from the same people, from the, you know. So there is some um, infighting amongst groups. Not everyone has the same idea about where we should be focusing. Everyone wants as much money as they can to further their mission. But what's interesting now is that a a lot of the group infighting, say, between the Center for Inquiry and the American American, Humanist Association. Or American Atheists. Or within the humanist movement, the split between religious and secular humanists. Right. uh, All these divisions tend to be historical, tend to be Mm -hmm. uh, holdovers from an earlier time. And as the kind of the new generation of skeptics and atheists have come on to the scene, the opinions I've been hearing from people is that this old infighting is, is quickly vanishing. We're and not really we're seeing the we're differences. Now, yeah, yeah this, is, this is a time where there's been more cooperation and, and overlap between these groups than ever before. And there are now more umbrella groups that are growing, efforts to bring secular lobbyists to Washington, D.C., that are actually uniting all these different secular organizations more than ever before. A lot of it, too, is I I think the groups are differentiating a bit, too, and saying, like Freedom From Religion Foundation, their issue is separation of church and state. Right. They focus on that. The AFA is more political. CFI is, is more scholarly. Yes, um, other groups are are dealing with the science angle. Some groups are dealing with the religion right. angle. You know, and, and we're they're specializing a bit more. Not everyone's stepping on everyone's toes, and it becomes this larger movement. Well, there's always in any movement, especially when they start to gain more publicity with with the mainstreamers wanting to fit in and play nice versus the radicals that right. uh, you know this happened in the women's movement, the gay rights movement, absolutely. You know the 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 uh, civil rights movement, well, the Malcolm yeah. Xers versus the Martin Luther Kings. It's, totally. There's always the there's always tension in any movement between the between wanting pe- everyone to get along and and fit right in and be treated equally versus the radicals who want who say that we are different and we should be demand to be accepted as right. But well, that was the focus of the NPR article it yeah. was trying to make the claim that they interviewed several people which we now know from people like PZ Myers and others speaking out about it that their interviews were mined for just the right quotes yeah 
which it, happens up all the time. I was going to say that's that's journalism. All the all the times that I've been interviewed, it's like hours worth of tape, and they usually end up my my snarky comments at the end. Usually, the reporter right. has an angle already that they want to pursue, which is I think Barbara Bradley Haggerty is the reporter here. She had an angle she wanted to pursue with this story: find fighting yeah. atheists and and accentuate that part. It and it. There is there are things that she does in this, and I I'm a big fan of NPR. It's not my favorite public radio station. That of course is WPRR 1680 AM. But I do love NPR. But there are things she does in this that I don't know how the editors let slide. Like um, she talks about um, Stuart Jordan who is a volunteer for the Center for Inquiry. And and by the way, in the interest of full disclosure, I'd say should say that all three of us are members of CFI. Um, well, I thought that's the whole reason why we were talking about well, this was because it, it was pretty personal. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, my my wife uh, is is an assistant director for our local group here in Michigan, and right. she sees all the interoffice emails, and uh, and you know immediately there was a stir after this article came out because some of the things that were said in this article are just plain false. They, right. they're, it's manipulative. And, and full disclosure, we're beaten if we say anything against CFI. That's they, right. they, they choke us and throw us across the conference table. Um, but uh, it, she interviewed Stuart Jordan, who she says is a science advisor for the Center for Inquiry. She says, quote, Jordan is a volunteer at the center and therefore could speak his mind as if implying that people who actually right. work for the center cannot. But interviews, she says, for this story with asso- with others associated with the Washington, D.C. office were canceled. A curious development for a group that promotes free speech. Yeah, the truth of the matter is these other interviews were with artists who had contributed to uh, a Blasphemy Day contest. Mm. And a couple of them simply didn't want to comment about their artwork on you know, right. on national radio and and personally refused to do the interview. So, uh, but she's alleging that this is somehow pressure from the higher ups. She's not exactly making it clear who these people no. were that were requested for interviews. And, and I have to say, and this was a few years back now, but I took a journalism class in college at Grand Rapids Community College. So I'm not claiming to be an expert, but even in that class, journalism 101, I was taught that someone refusing to comment for an article should not be used as a way to attack them. And if she's going to get ad hominem, there was a lot of information that came out about this afterwards about Barbara Bradley Haggerty's own particular biases. She's the one who we mentioned earlier had done the NPR's religion correspondent. She did the story on like the the whole series on the brain mm-hmm. and spiritual experiences. She covered like that transcortical magnetic stimulation right. and, and things. And she uh, uh, it came out that that she had made you know has a history of making speeches to religious organizations where she refers to herself as being you know a Christian reporter that combines those two and sees that as part of her mission. And the point is that she also has a history of skewing her different articles to her personal beliefs, right. such as uh, a lot of this information into the author, Barbara Bradley Haggerty, happened around 2004 because she was the one that was pushing this reporting on J- John Kerry and the Eucharist, being a Catholic oh. and being denied all this. Mm-hmm. And it came out that she had previous relationships with a lot of the people that she was actually interviewing mm-hmm. and had skewed the reporting by interviewing people who were going to have you know the anti-Kerry perspective. Right. She's also done critical reporting of the, Christ- of the Church of Christian Science with 
without uh, without admitting that she was a previous member of the church. Oh, um, she's done reporting on movie reviews on the Chronicles of Narnia movies, talking about how great they are, while not admitting that she is on the editorial board for Knowing and Doing, the magazine of the C.S. Lewis Institute. <laughs> I think that that's Dave's kind of journalism 101 is also what you were saying before yeah. about journalism is full disclosure. Every reporter is going to have biases. We're all biased. Sure. But, Wh- but which the, is, I guess, why I pointed out that we're CFI members. The whole point of journalism, though, is to, is to as much as possible that transparency yes. is, is the key to is to so that the listener knows what's going to happen. To have an opinion is one thing, but to have that color your news reporting. And we're not talking about editorials here. Right. We're not she talking could, about she opinion could have pieces. Editorials. She could start her own Absolutely. podcast, for Christ's sakes. Yep. <laughs> the NPR ethics guide, you know, makes it clear that their reporters, their employees, this is a breach of ethics. It says uh, NPR, their guideline number eight on outside work, freelancing, and speaking engagements. Their guideline number eight is that NPR journalists may not speak to groups where the journalist's appearance might put in question his or her impartiality. Well, um, it doesn't put it in question, I don't think. I think it makes it clear that she's impartial. Right, uh, including impartial. situation or, or where she is partial. Including situations where the employee's appearance may appear to endorse the agenda of a certain group mm. or organization. Well, all her time speaking to the Baptist Press Student Journalism Conference, the Summer Institute of Journalism, uh, the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, over and over again, she's out there making statements about how her boss is Jesus Christ. Her audience for her writing is God. What kind um, of insurance plan do you get with uh, with Jesus? <laughs> I mean, our own local religion reporters is more, uh, you know, unbiased than this. We get all kinds of yeah. like objective coverage from from Chuck Honey. Right. It's it's perfectly possible to have a religious background, to have strong religious convictions, and to not let it influence uh, your reporting. But when you when you look at her background and her public statements on these matters, and then you turn to this article that was written about the bitter rift in atheism. Yeah. I mean, she's on the editorial board of a apologetics magazine for Christ's sake and NPR either doesn't know or thinks it's not a conflict of interest that then she reports on atheists yeah NPR usually has better standards than that right another story making it onto our shit list is from Fort Oglethorpe Georgia okay Um, Luke I believe you you found this article Yes, I did. This the the this was a story that the uh, a local high school there had uh, had I don't know how long a tradition, but they were having uh, more than a few incidences where the cheerleaders were holding up during football games religious signs like they including Bible verses typically yeah. and things. like Well, that. I can tell you exactly how long they've had this tradition. Oh. The the first paragraph of this article, which comes to us from the New York Times, in response to drum roll please the September 11th attacks. The football cheerleaders at a public high school here in Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia, wanted to make the Bible a bigger part of Friday night games. So, to the delight of fans... 9-11 has proved that we need more religion. Exactly. They painted messages like, quote, commit to the Lord, or on giant paper banners, and this is the funny part, that the players charged through onto the field. (laughs) So they would make giant commit to the Lord sign, which the players would then burst through as but they I th- ran to the I field. I think the ironic part of this story is that the, w- the member then who brought uh, this to the attention that they probably should stop doing this yes. 
was actually a, a Christian herself and a graduate of the uh, what Liberty, Liberty University, University from Falwell's uh, Liberty University, oh, wow. who and said um, we're probably exposing ourselves here to a potential legal state issues. Challenge. Yeah. So let's not uh, let's not make with the Bible verses. And when she brought this up to the school district, they agreed and said, you know what, this is a school-sponsored group. The the cheerleaders here, we cannot promote. Um, a religion. So, what's so it sounds like everybody did the right thing. Where's the shit list? Well, what happens in response is... A miracle. Yeah. Now, um, because the cheerleaders can't hold up signs, everyone else is. And even more signs. Uh, they tried to stamp our religion out, and then the, the, the narrative is that it, it, it flourished even more in the bleachers from the families bringing signs from yeah. hither and yon. And they're doing fundraisers, and they're selling t-shirts, things that say, um, you can't silence us, living faith out loud. It's an anti-free speech thing. Yeah. You're, that why everyone gets a message except if it's a religious message. And I actually help, I help. Got, I'm being repressed. I signed on to the to the Facebook uh, message group so I could interact with some of these people. And if you scrolled, if you just look at the feed of these of the support ones, they'll be like you know nine out of ten of the messages will be well, free speech. Why can't we say what we want? God bless the girls. And then like I wrote in and some other people wrote in. Look, this isn't about free speech. It's about school endorsed speech. I'll support yep. your right to shout the religion from the roof rooftops in a private setting, or if the cheerleaders want to take off the school uniform and then go mingle and wave the sign, fine. People in the crowd want to hold up signs. Go ahead. And nobody, uh, whenever there's a, a remark like that, nobody responds to it. Uh, they just will quote another Bible verse or say it's free speech. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering, do they re- actually, is this, do they really get the whole distinction between school-sponsored speech and private speech, that it's yeah. okay to be religious in private speech? So, so let me get this straight. The, the cheerleaders on the field are... Were they're not were. doing it anymore? Okay. The school stopped it. They well, were they had Bible verses. Yeah, but the, the parents are then still within their right to do this, right? Yes, so absolutely. This is, this is more just annoying and atti- yeah, intimidation yeah. than anything legally. Yeah, or majority rule here. type stuff. They often say, "Why? Why yeah. should one person silence the most people? The cheerleaders want the Bible verses, so let them do what they want." Right. Right. And, right. and this don't uh, seem to understand <laughs> what's yeah. going on. Cheerleader Caitlin. Corley, uh, 18-year-old cheerleader, said that the band had put a damper on her senior year, oh. preventing her from singing Jesus Loves You with other fans while she's acting as a cheerleader on the field. The banners display secular messages like, we love our seniors. Oh, man, that's such a downer. Prepare, compete, finish. Okay, And she finds that less inspirational. I'm a Christian, she says, and I think it's really neat To be a part of a program that wasn't afraid to express its beliefs. We are representatives of the school, but we're also individuals, and we have the right to believe whatever religion we want. Yes, you do, so don't force yours on everyone so else. So I, I started suggesting, I got snarky on the, on the Facebook feed. And I, I can't started, imagine. I started suggesting other Bible verses like, you know, keep slaves and smash the little ones' heads and all the all our favorites <laughs> that we trundle out, you know. And I thought surely this would get a response or whatever. And the guy wrote back on the thing, well, at least this has got you reading the Bible more. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> so they they weren't even they weren't even like uh, fighting that 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 ugly nasty Bible verses could in fact be used there at the thing. But what he was saying was, well, on balance, hey, there's some good stuff in there. So <laughs> doc, doc professor is reading the Bible now, so that's so working he's out well. Expecting that I'll ignore all the slavery and the misogyny and go, hey, oh. this re- book really is good. Well, if they want that, they can just go to a Christian high school. I mean, yep, I did. Not 
Who would have thought that violent Bible verses would somehow be thought of as out of place at a football game? (laughs) (laughs) Jesus wants you to tear the other guy's head off. There you go. Uh, Okay. And now time for Stranger Than Fiction. Egyptian conservatives call for ban of artificial virginity hymen kits imported from China. Those Chinese are industrious people. If they're like, <laughs> we need something we can market to the Muslim world. What can we have? Uh, virginity restorer devices. Yeah. That's a good idea. And when Jeremy, when you sent, when you first found this article, and mm-hmm. and we're hitting it long after everyone else has, <laughs> we thought we were going to get to talk about it. <laughs> before, but yeah. Even NPR covered this. Yeah, one. NPR yeah. has covered this. Everybody's talked about this by now. Now, you sent this out as, as kind of the ultimate stranger than fiction. I thought we could retire the segment on this article. <laughs> well, <laughs> fake hymens, people selling a fake hymen kit to restore virginity. Right. And which, by the way, the slogan is, um, oh no. experience it like the first time again. They call it an artificial virginity hymen kit. It's uh, by this Chinese company, Gigamo. It costs $30, and what it does is it mimics a hymen, and the product leaks a fake blood-like substance when it is broken, um, so you can still stain your sheets with blood. Yeah. Yeah, but apparently in many Arab communities, if the woman doesn't bleed on her wedding night, she's not considered a virgin. Sometimes they even keep the sheets to prove to the relatives yeah. of that 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 bride suitable was... for framing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is and and if you are not a virgin, of course, um, it can well lead and to... and not just that and not just that because the hymen can break. Oh yeah, in all sorts of well, ways. Well, some people before... are born without them. Yeah, yeah. So so this is not. This is not despite all a that recent good bicycle riding accident. I am still technically a virgin. You're going to get a lot of false positives with the Hyman That's test. Stretching a good thing a little too far there, Dave. That, that was a, oh my god. That was an SNL quote from like a decade back. Thanks, Sherry O'Terry, for that one. Um, yeah. So on the face of it, this this story is is kind of funny, but really when you get into it, the what's going on behind here is awfully horrifying i mean the idea you know women women can get punished they can be killed yeah if they are not considered virgins on their wedding night the muslim brotherhood in egypt is speaking out against this uh as are all sorts of public figures saying that anybody who imports this product in Mm -hmm. from china which they're specifically pitching it to they're marketing this to muslim women oh yeah they have that in mind from the very beginning. Uh, anybody who brings this, imports this kit in, should be prosecuted, should be punished in some sort of way. Because they're helping to promote sluttery? Is that what the idea you, is? You know what it reminded me of is the people in, Deception te- uh, of men. The, the people in Texas that are against Gardasil, the, the, the vaccine for cervical cancer. They sure. were, their argument, some of the Christians' argument was that if you give girls a chance to vaccinate against that, what will stop them from being promiscuous? Yeah. And, yep. and the good old Muslim yeah. Brotherhood is, is right along that same lines there with, you know, well, yeah, yeah, if they can have... restore your hymen, why would you want to stay a virgin? Yeah. Yeah, they. I mean, they try to frame this as if they are protecting the woman, and then they're protecting, uh, or they're fighting against stereotypes of women being whores. Is yeah. the way they're trying to justify this. What I was surprised at is, you know, um, I, I had no idea that this was even an issue. 
Apparently, before this kit was even released, there is a surgery. It's called mm-hmm. hymenoplasty, where they can actually restore the hymen. Uh, New York Times reported uh, that we're talking to one doctor in France, I believe, who does the procedure two to four times a week. So that's wow. 100 or 200 women per year getting the procedure. That's just one practitioner. Yeah. And there's been all sorts of debates about this in, in France, uh, people lashing out against it, not just fundamentalist Muslims either, right. even feminist groups. Well, it reinforces the problem. Yeah, they say it reinforces a gender bias that these doctors are misleading the, the families of these patients. Mm-hmm. Wow, it just seems to me like so messed up that they could have this this level of a fetish around virginity mm, and that yep. the woman should bleed on their wedding night it's i i don't i can't even it's, begin well, to understand this the, way of thinking the, the, the in the patriarchal culture her value is her um, i guess so you know is yeah, her her, her fidelity and her unspoiled goodness that's why you'd have a woman is to produce heirs that are only the heirs well, of males and, and, and why you you do female circumcision to keep them from enjoying sex um, so that they won't wander off elsewhere. And Chastity belts. Yeah, veils, that's not as wide as a practice. But no, 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 it's not. Thank goodness for that. Although male circumcision, which is also genital mutilation, is a wide practice. Why don't we sell a surgery for males where we can have the, the the foreskin actually kind of, you know, sewed up there so that they have to break it open when they are on their wedding night <laughs> and bleed from the foreskin? <laughs> that would be fair. Yeah. To finish up uh, this article coming from the Huffington Post... Conservative Bible Project cuts out liberal passages. Conservapedia, uh, are you guys familiar with Conservapedia? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's the, the conservative answer to Wikipedia, which um, charges that Wikipedia has a liberal bias because it's... Factual. Fact, well, Wikipedia isn't exactly the uh, number one source for accurate information, but there's it doesn't deserve quite the bad rap it often gets in academic circles. Anyway... Conservapedia um, has decided that they're going to release a uh, new translation of the Bible that gets rid of all that liberal nonsense. Yeah, on their page on their page for Conservative Bible Project, it begins with liberal bias has become the single biggest distortion in modern Bible translations. Uh, the remarkable thing about this to me is how upfront they are about what they're doing. There's no, this is not a hidden agenda. They they have a ten point list of things that they intend to do with this new translation. Um, Here we go. Number one, framework against liberal bias, providing a strong framework that enables a thought-for-thought translation without corruption by liberal bias. Number two, not emasculated. They're avoiding unisex, gender-inclusive language and other modern emasculation of Christianity. Christianity, a man's religion. They want it patriarchal. None of this uh, Absolutely. hippie stuff. Not dumbed down. Yeah, I thought that was odd. They they complain that the NIV is written at only a seventh grade level, and uh, seems kind of high for most fundamentalists, really. <laughs> well, yeah, first of all, but is that seventh grade uh, public school or homeschool? It's clear to me, looking at the, at their list, and it's way more than just these ten points that these people right. have no clue, no prior experience with any of these texts or how translations are done. The Mm-mm. the NIV is a dynamic equivalent. It's not trying to be a literal translation. Right. It's trying to be, it's it's closer to what we would call a paraphrase. 
As the Catholic Church knew before Martin Luther came along, the more impenetrable a text is, the easier it is to control the message from the common masses. So. That's right, which which reminds well, me... Well, actually, their tenth point is yep. they prefer conciseness over liberal wordiness. Yeah. Isn't that All that gray area. <laughs> Doesn't that contradict the previous yeah, point? They don't yes. want to dumb it down, but... Uh, but concise, yeah. but not... Yeah, what, what is an example, too, of being concise here is using the word Lord instead of Jehovah or Yahweh. That's right. I'm like, how how is that concise? That's shaving off a couple letters on right. the end. I wonder if they just don't like the idea that their God has a name. Uh, that's probably part of it. There's there's other really interesting things. They're going to utilize powerful conservative terms. Um, Blessed are the tax shelter. Defective translations, which I, I think is the NIV and stuff, use the word comrade yeah, three times as often as volunteer. Well, there's your agenda Chris right there. Be the union members. They also want to combat harmful addiction. They're going to use the word gambling instead of casting lots because it's gambling that's the problem. Yeah, yeah that, that, that'll be funny oh. when, it, when it comes to things like Acts when they're choosing the replacement for Judas and they gamble to <laughs> find right. out who should be the That's replacement right. for Judas. Yeah, and they're also going to accept the logic of hell because apparently some of those namby-pamby Bibles aren't quite clear enough. Going to apply the logic with its full force and effect is in not denying or downplaying the very real existence of hell or the devil. So in other words, they're going to have to delete large portions of Job mm-hmm. and of... The Old Testament... Of yeah, Job, other places in the Old Testament, the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, which all seem to not believe yeah. in a hell. My very favorite part of their agenda, though, is to quote express free market parables. There you go. That's what Jesus was in favor for. I was trying to think of what, what were what are the free market parables. I know some parables the, where the one workers where the, come late <coughs> to the scene and get the same payment the as talents everyone else. that were invested yeah. instead of buried. They always refer to that one. Oh, okay. So they oh, were able to find see, one. When the, yeah, when, the, okay. when the owner comes back and, fi- and rewards the person for investing wisely the money rather than burying it in a but, hole. But that's one. Actually, and how do you play that up? What Jesus should have done is update that one for the modern stock market and say that the, the owner comes back and finds out that the guy took the money, invested in it, and lost it all in risky uh, high-cap stocks. The guy stocks who buried and, it and then still has it. You wisely invested and avoided exposure to the market. Well, uh, what's what's also interesting is they want to remove liberal falsehoods, mm-hmm. um, but the, not in translation. And insert their own. Yeah. Um, they, they give an example of a liberal falsehood, and they say the earliest, most authentic manuscripts lack Luke 23, chapter 23, verse 34, where he says, Father, forgive them, for they know what they are doing. They and know says, not what they do. And they go, is this a liberal corruption of the original? Now, I'm picturing, like, did, uh, I don't know, Barbara Boxer get in a time machine and go back to, like, <laughs> 300 A.D. and corrupt the manuscripts here? Yeah. Like, what, what are they even talking about? This is th- They're thinking this is political? So I'm assuming that they're also going to lobby to go back and eliminate the resurrection story from the... Uh, from well, the that's what I was thinking. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're really... Since uh, it wasn't in the earliest translations. They're really, yeah, they don't understand if they're going to be consistent on that, how much of passages they wouldn't want to get rid of are going to hit the dumping ground. And it's striking. But they, they also want to, uh, the other one they want to get rid of is the story of the adulteress, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. whoever yeah. has the first stone. So liberal. they appear to be targeting anything in the Gospels that 
focuses on forgiveness or compassion. Now, do you suppose after they cobble this together that they're still going to push the argument that this is the direct inspired word of God, the living word of God, perfect? And uh, how can you? I mean, and, and honestly, they're putting well, their Bible all, together they, much the same way the yeah. other, all other translations. They are don't want to do a translation, well, as in going to the Hebrew and the no. and the Greek. I mean, they mention oh, there'd that be would some be, merit in that. That would be nice to do that at yeah. some point, but they actually say they want to use the King James Bible. We as ain't their, got no one who can read no Greek. Yeah, they want to use the King James Bible as their baseline translation. Basically, they just want to f- screw around with the terminology. Well, because King James had no political agenda with his version of the Bible. Yeah, I wonder if they know he was a homosexual. Yeah. Anyways. Who believed in witches. They, But it's so funny because at the very end of their whole thing on the conservative Bible project, they include a warning from Revel- from the end of Revelation that says anybody who adds or takes away from this book will have their name written out of the book of life. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, well, what the what? hell is the Who, purpose of that? Who's going to, what? Oh, man. <laughs> well, what they say is one of the benefits of the conservative Bible project is that liberals going in to refute them will be forced to read the Bible. See, that's the and, same thing oh, they told yeah. me. See? I, yeah. I know. Wow. But what's funny is I, I think it's probably going to go the other way around because I think when these yeah. guys are cracking open this book, you know, and, they, and they're reading Acts 2 and people so selling bored. all their possessions and yeah. all this railing against sucking up the rich people and everything else, they're, they're, they're not even going to be prepared for what they find when they actually crack open the Bible. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, moral of the week, read more Bible or read less Bible? I'm not Re- really sure. Re- read it uh, not tendentiously, I guess. There we go. Um, so, that's going to do it for us this week. Um, just a reminder, we do have a forum at doubtcast.forummotion. That's one M dot net. Please feel free to make comments on the blog, but save the lengthy discussions for the forum. And that's going to do it for us this week. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back in two weeks with more of your skeptical guide to religion here on Reasonable Doubts. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.